We are so excited to share this amazing story on Women Who Win, our women's media platform celebrating stories of diversity and inclusion. Meet Nikki Barnes. So Nikki is an inspiring leader in the education space with the mission to better the education system for young students. So let's dive into her story. So the first question we have for you is tell us your story. So as we know, you're a visionary leader with a passion for public education. So tell us more about this journey and what inspired you. Uh, yeah, first of all, I'm very honored uh, to be featured here. And I'll let you know, I am inspired by my mother and my ancestors. They are my inspiration. Uh, I am a descendant of enslaved Africans from Chapel Hill, Durham, North Carolina, and Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my mother and father attended segregated schools, uh, used textbooks that were discarded by the white schools when, once the white schools were done. They always knew education was key and that you had to fight for it. Um, and I was blessed enough to have really powerful black female elementary school teachers and I loved school. I knew, and I knew early on that I wanted to be a teacher. And I also knew early on that integration did not fix everything. My parents hoped that their march on Washington, that integration would fix everything and it did not because then within the buildings, we still had the same uh, segregation and racism living within our school buildings. And I had hope, I had a vision for how schools could look as young as like 18 years old. And so I went to college to teach. I came back to my hometown as a teacher. I taught for about 12 years. And in those 12 years, I really worked to be a great teacher, like a warm and demanding teacher, a teacher who integrated what was in my heart and in my mind. And in those years, I learned that teaching is rocket science and brain surgery. At the same time, on someone's hopes and dreams, their very heart, their children, and it is one of the most complex multidimensional bodies of work that anyone can engage in. I realized that early. I then realized I wanted to lead other teachers. And I found my way to a KIPP school, a charter school that was mission-driven, which spoke to my sense of justice that I gained from my parents. And now I find myself in one of the most historical states in our country, in Massachusetts, leading KIPP Academy Lynn and KIPP Academy uh, Boston to ensure that our children have what they need to be on a path to a fulfilled uh, life. And all of that goes all the way back to my ancestors and to my mother really uh, ensuring that I understood that knowledge is power. I knew that. And KIPP stands for the knowledge is power. Uh, program and she still uh, inspires me today. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that it stood for Knowledge is Power. I love that. It stands for Knowledge is Power program. Yeah. And that's amazing how it all kind of started from your family and how yes. your family background had a huge influence on your life's work and your mission. Um, and that kind of brings us into our next question. So you've worked with many students and families from all different backgrounds. And what are some of the key learnings you've had and how education can empower young women in particular? And are there anything that schools and families can do to really empower like young women um, to pursue things like STEM? Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, I don't think uh, our country has ever done education right. Nobody in our country has uh, because education is historically a female-led industry. Your teachers 
were female hundreds of years ago, and the principal or superintendent in general was a man. And of course, we do now have female leaders, uh, principals, superintendents, academic leaders. But I do want to name that because public education is historically a female-led, female-driven uh, career, it has never really been given what it should be, the understanding and the respect, even to this day. Um, so what I've uh, learned is that education is education, but it's also political. There is no education without politics. And so the role uh, that women have played is that we've had to hold almost, almost a double consciousness that we often talk about in terms of being people of color. Women have had to be smart and pretty, strong and demure, strategic and becoming. We've had to do that. And I've learned that women are powerful and wise, and we probably should be running more organizations, more countries, by the way, um, because we're some of the most powerful people I know. So that's the, the first thing I wanna name about women in this role and in education. Now, in terms of how do we get more of our women, our young ladies, uh, young folks who identify as women into STEM, the arts and businesses, the first thing schools have to do is walk in what we call co-authorship with families. At KIPP, um, Massachusetts, we have a model of family engagement called co-authorship, and it means we share power with families. A lot of schools might say, yeah, we share power with families. Well, I'm not talking about transactional. I'm talking about families have a voice and oftentimes decision-making rights. And when they don't have the decision-making rights and they don't like the decision that we've made, we engage in conflict. We engage in disagreement. We, we see the disagreement as an example or as proof that we're doing the right thing because we are not um, pacifying each other. We're not walking around an issue. We're addressing it uh, head on. So this means that for our students who identify as uh, girls, how do they get into STEM? We have strong relationships with their families. We ensure that they see STEM teachers who are, are women. We ensure that their teachers and leaders are, look like them. We also honor the voice of the women in their families. Again, we have lots of town halls. We right now disagree on some things in our organization with our families, um, and we engage in that. We also finally, I want to name that we don't prescribe what it means to be a woman. We have women who wear pearls and a silk blouse and a blue jacket. We might have some women who are wearing sneakers and a button down shirt. We, so we don't prescribe what that looks like. We ensure that our young women have the opportunity to become whoever they want to become and that they see various examples of women every day that they come to school from the classroom to the leadership um, position. And when we walk in partnership with their parents, their parents have a voice. Sometimes they have a vote and we engage in conflict con uh, in a constructive way. I would say that's how we do that. That's amazing. And I think often just seeing people that look like you and have similar backgrounds to you in a teaching role or kind of being a role model, I think is such a big part of influencing um, like your career and the decisions yeah. you make after school. Yeah. Um, the next one, um, and I'm really excited about this one. 
Um, how would you describe your leadership style in three words? Servant, direct, gatherer. I like that. Yes. Do you want to elaborate a bit? I'm curious. Absolutely. Interesting will. choices. Uh, I'll start with a gatherer. Uh, one of my sheroes is Harriet Tubman. And Harriet Tubman was a gatherer of people. She would sing uh, at the edge of a plantation and folks would know Moses is here. Let's go. And she gathered them together and she let them know we're about to go on a journey. You know where we're headed. I know how to get there. Sometimes I'm going to tell you to do things that are strange. I'm going to tell you to go back south. We're going to make a turn and go left. And here you're going to, you're not going to trust me, but I need you to trust me. And she gathered people. That's what I do. I'm, I'm able to share with people a compelling vision and get them invested and gather them along from students to whole schools to an entire region of people. And when we gather them, then I decide what role am I going to play? And this is the servant or director. I can gather you, but that doesn't mean I'm always in front. Sometimes I'm along the side, encouraging people to go on and I have somebody else leading from the front. Sometimes I'm in the middle of the gathered group, listening to people, figuring out how they're feeling, because then that gives me the uh, information that I need to see how to attend to who they are in this moment. Sometimes I'm the wind in their back. And that connects to me being a servant. As a servant leader, I find out from my folks, what do you need in order for us to move to the next stage, in order for us to meet our mission, to meet our vision? And then I'm direct. I say it like it is. I say what I need Good. to say. And I do that with love, yeah. but I do it with in a direct way uh, because I think people, it builds trust uh, and it makes people uh, feel seen. and. I love my folks. If you work for me, I love you. I'm trying to make sure I create a place where you thrive. I love that. And I love what you said about the gatherer piece, because I think for a lot of us that are more like early professional, um, we're kind of just a fly on the wall and we're often just kind of gathering the information. So I think it's yeah. important to kind of take that gathering with more of a leadership lens, right? So thinking about not only am I collecting this, but thinking about how this can be useful to the whole company or you know wherever I'm working. So I really yeah. like that. Very good choices in words. Very interesting. I've never heard those ones before, all three together. Okay. Very interesting. That's, that's um, what came to my mind when, you, when I read <laughs> No, that. I love it. Um, so the fourth, so going into our next question um, on DEI. So mm -hmm. that's a really big topic for us at Women Who Win. We're really focused on um, highlighting women that are, that are focusing on driving like representation and equality in different sectors. And so you being in the education sector, how are you aiming to address DEI at KIT? Yeah. First of all, it starts with me. It nice. starts with me being on my own DEI journey, me unpacking my own prejudices, my own biases, me thinking back on how I was raised. I was born in Norfolk Community Hospital in 1969 because that was the hospital that I could have been born in as a Black child. My mom's doctor was black. I could not have been born at the other hospital. Um, I, me reflecting on the impact that my race has had on where I live, how I went to church, who was in my immediate circle, allows me to do things like unpack internalized racism that I've internalized. It allows me to address my own anti-blackness 
I'm a lighter brown person. I have not had to navigate the world as a very dark skinned woman. That is a different experience. So first it starts with me. It starts with me recognizing in some cases, my privilege, my education, the fact that I have health insurance, the fact that I am able-bodied, the fact that I am Christian and heterosexual. I, I think the most important thing is that I let my team know I'm on this journey as well. And so if it starts with me, the leader, then it includes everybody in my organization saying, Let's, let me have my own individual journey, because as long as we're all on the journey, then we can come together and say, now, as an organization, where are we living out our anti-racist and inclusive vision and mission, and where are we not? It opens the door for us to have those conversations that people are really uncomfortable with having. So I would tell you, moving beyond myself, that DEI is both the anchor and the umbrella and the pillars and walls around everything that we do. Um, so from what we teach to how we greet kids in the morning to how we co-author with families, because we know oftentimes we are in a position of power. So if we, what does our anti-racist position and identity demand of us? It demands that we co-author with parents. It demands that I listen to uh children, because I can learn from anybody can be my teacher. Um, and I think DEI also lives with our board of directors. Every board session, every time our board gets together, we have a DEI session with our board, where we look at the history of education. We've done sessions with our, uh, the history of public education in the United States. Mm -hmm. We've done sessions with our board, where we talked about redlining. And some what is of that? Uh, redlining the practice of uh, post-World War II, where the uh, government actually worked with cities to redline on a map where people, where Black people would live. Oh, wow. Where you don't want Black people to live. My wow. parents actually experienced that. My parents wow. got a, a special loan in the 70s, and the loan was based on, it was FDIC, um, FHA 235 loan. Um, the federal government paid their down payment because they wanted more Black people to own homes because they thought if we own homes, we wouldn't tear up the apartments we were in. I'm not going to go there. But I want you to know that my mother had my sister and didn't work. When my mother went back to work, their mortgage went up. Wow. How does get mortgage like that? Research it, FHA 235. My parents had an FHA 235 loan. Um, and when she went back to work, their mortgage went up. And they saw it. They said, it's the only way we're going to get a home. Um, and I lived in, all, in an all-Black neighborhood that was created for Black people. Nobody white was going to move into that neighborhood. So um, I share that because as a part of our learning as an organization, we need to really I think you're frozen in our country and we're not afraid of it and I'll tell you right now not because you need to know because I need to uh like make anybody feel good I love my country I love these United States of America and like our friend Baldwin said and I have the right to perpetually question her on who she is I'm paraphrasing um but that's what we do. We believe that DEI is at the heart of how we 
undo the racist structures on which this beloved, wonderful country was created. And in doing so, first we start with ourselves. We are on a journey. All of us have some learning to do and we continue to do it. We've never arrived. And we always ask the question, are we honoring the diversity, the inclusivity, the uh, anti-racist um, identity that we say we have in what we do and what we put in front of kids every day and how we train our teachers and how we train our leaders to engage in conversation with parents who are frustrated and where our resources go and our hiring practices. It lives in all of it. But we started, a, we really started our journey back in 2017 and we make it really important that it starts with who you are as a person and you unpacking your own um, DEI lived experience. Wow, that's, wow. I'm just very, very amazed by your story and the work you're in your journey. Um, that's amazing. Going, and then of course, as you know, as our platform is called Women Who Win, what does that phrase mean to you when you hear it? Um, and is there a woman in your life that you admire? Yes, and I'm trying not to tear up because I do. So when women win, they are whole. I like that. They have the, they are winning when they can display their, their definition of womanhood in a way that is authentic to them. And they have access to power and resources to become whatever they want to become. And in doing so, the next generation of women behind them, they clear that path for them. But in clearing that path, they don't have to die as a result. Right. Um, when women win, the country wins. When women win, families are stronger. When women win, communities are tighter, are more cohesive. When women win, the way we share resources is, is fairer, is more equitable. Uh, I don't claim to have the definition of what it means to be a woman. I do yeah. not. I have my own definition of what it means uh, to be a woman. And as a woman, I am a very powerful person. I also have the capacity to have fear, trepidation, shame, be unnerved, need a hug. And I should be able to be both that gatherer. I should be able to be Harriet Tubman. And I should also be able to be a person who says, I need rest. Yeah. I need it. Or I need I to that. cry right now. I need to weep. And that does not mean I can't lead. It is because I weep and I embrace my own sadness and, and live in that when I need to, that I can lead. And the person who does that the most for me right now is my daughter. She will be 30 years old in September. She is a fourth grade teacher at Kip Boston. Oh, wow. This is her seventh year. And every day she walks into that classroom. That's amazing. She's kind of following in your footsteps. Yes. <laughs> she, she teaches with her head and her heart. 
She studies her craft. She internalizes her lessons. She goes around and looks at the kids' work and um, tries to unpack within like five minutes the misconception that students aren't, aren't getting, let's say, in a math lesson. And then she brings them in and she addresses that misconception. And she does all of that with 20 some odd kids from 20 some odd different backgrounds with 20 some odd different needs. Wow. Your daughter sounds very incredible. And I think she's learning from the best. And and I know her the most, but (laughs) I'm tearing up because that is the complex, multidimensional work. The, The work of teaching, the brain surgery, and the rocket science that no one to me in the history of this country has ever sought to really understand. Right. And so she is the woman I admire in my life right now, my daughter, Adriana Barnes. I love that. And I think it sounds like she's such an incredible person. And I think she's really learning from the best like you. So that is amazing. And great to see how much you admire her. Um, wow. So going into our final question, and this kind of ties back to your point about giving women yes. that time to rest. Yes. How do you find your work-life balance? Um, you certainly Ooh, seem yeah. like you're busy. What are your yeah. hobbies? How do you relax? How do you unwind? So I choose my hobbies. Uh, the way I relax is aligned to the stressor that I'm feeling. So if I'm feeling overwhelmed by the a, a long to-do list, I pause that to-do list for about an hour and I plan travel. I plan some type oh, of travel that I, I, maybe I'm going somewhere in August. Nice. I will pause for a moment and say, let me look at some restaurants in that place. And that takes my mind away from the work. It allows me to do something that I like that also I'm going to do gives me the break that I need. And then I go back uh, to my work. Um, When I am stuck and I can't come up with a vision, I listen to music and I sing and I dance. Um, When I uh, am feeling responsible for where I take our organization next, like I, I gather people, gather them for what and to go to what. I like the ocean. I like to sit on a beach chair in front of the ocean and just listen for a while and let the ocean speak to me. Um, And sometimes I like to bake. I'm trying to really get excellent at biscuits, which I'm a Southern woman. So uh, that's something we all know how to do. So sometimes I'll just make biscuits over and over until uh, it, it gets better. But I tell you what, I manage my time by narrowing down what's most important for me to do today, this week, this month, this quarter of the year. Um, I manage my time by delegating the way I should. I don't have to own it all. And uh, I'm learning that um, never a failure, always a lesson. I didn't come up with that. Uh, That comes from the author of Emergent Strategy. So I'm always reading. I'm always reading a book about how to be a better leader along with a romance novel too. Of course. <laughs> uh, that, um, Balance. I, I give myself the grace to be human and I celebrate every small win 
every single small win um, because the little wins get, um, add up to bigger wins and I make sure I get enough sleep. I don't play with my sleep. Nice. <laughs> so those are some of the things I do. Nice. I've heard that from a lot of the best leaders. I feel like they they have those very set, like disciplined rules for their sleep schedule, their eating schedules, their exercise. And I think that is what really speaks to that. So yeah. I could do better on the exercise. <laughs> Me too. Do not play my sleep. That's the joke. People are like, please do not email Nikki or text her at nine. She is in bed. I am. Are you an early riser? Yes, I am. Because my brain is alert. And Monday is my favorite day of the week. Wow. Yes. You might be an island on that one. I believe I am, but it is my favorite day. It's a new week. That's amazing. I actually like Sunday the most too, for that reason. Because it's like... Awesome. Well, thank you, Nikki. We are so happy to have you on the show. It was wonderful speaking with you and we look forward to more conversations. Thank you for joining us for an inspiring and thought-provoking conversation with Women Who Win. For more stories of women leaders around the globe, please follow our Spotify channel and check out our website, womenwhowin100.com.